Our scripture lesson for today comes to us from the Gospel of John. It comes from the very end of the Gospel of John from chapter 21. Listen now for God's word to speak in and among us. Later, Jesus himself appeared again to his disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, also known as the Sea of Galilee. This is how it happened. Simon Peter and Thomas and Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee and Zebedee's sons and two other disciples were together. Simon Peter told them, I'm going fishing. And so they said, we'll, we'll go with you. And they set out in a boat, but throughout the night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore but the, Jesus, the disciples didn't realize that it was Jesus. Jesus called to them, saying, Children, have you caught anything to eat? They answered him, No. Jesus said, Cast your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. And so they did, and there were so many fish that they couldn't haul in the net. The disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he wrapped his coat around him, for he had been dressed for fishing, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they weren't far from shore, only about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. And so Simon Peter got up and pulled the net to shore. It was full of large fish, 153 of them. Yet the net hadn't torn, even with so many fish. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples could bring themselves to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and he did the same with the fish. This is now the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Jesus did many other things as well. If all of them were recorded, I imagine the world itself wouldn't have enough room for the scrolls that would be written. Please pray with me. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So let's say that this, this afternoon you guys go home and you relax for a little while and then you begin getting ready. You shower, you get dressed in your favorite floor-length black dress or your best tuxedo, you fix your hair just right, you put on special shoes, you make sure you've got your ticket in hand, and then, when it's time, the limo arrives, and you begin to drive south towards the bright lights of the city. You arrive downtown at your destination, you get out of the limo, you look up at the marquee before you walk inside. As you go in, people greet you at the door, they ask for your ticket, they offer to take your coat, you walk up a grand staircase, and you're greeted again. You're handed this time a playbill and asked for your ticket again so that you can be guided to your seat. 
You find your way to a plush velvet chair and sit down. Some time goes by and finally the lights go down, the crowd hushes, and the curtains go up. It's time. Now, based on what I've described here, what do you expect? You expect maybe an opera or the symphony or Beethoven or Bach or Shakespeare. Maybe you wouldn't be too surprised if the curtain went up and there was Springsteen or Beyonce. Maybe it's a little too fancy, too formal, but maybe you wouldn't be surprised. And I suppose if the curtain went up and there was a podium and Pope Francis or the Dalai Lama or even Malala, you might not have too many questions. It might be a charity event, possibly, maybe. But what if the curtain goes up and behind it is something entirely different? A televised baseball game that you could be wa watching at home or a rerun of Friends or CSI or Breaking Bad or your television shows that you watch on Thursday night after a long day? Or what if it was simply a Monet, the lily pond, hung just right, the lighting is perfect, museum quality, but it's unaccompanied by story or song or dance. Any of those things might leave you wanting something more. Everything you did, getting dressed up, taking special transportation, walking under the marquee, being ushered up to the velvet chair, holding the playbill, waiting for the curtain to rise, all these things framed your expectations, and anything outside of those expectations might be considered a disruption. We live in a world of expectations and disruptions. The daughter who always wanted to become a doctor was disrupted when she took her first economics class and switched majors. The son who always expected he'd go to business school was disrupted when he traveled to Malawi for the summer, for a summer of service. The injury disrupted a hoped-for sports career. The medical diagnosis disrupted a life that was hoped for. A death in the family turned everything upside down. A job offer moved you and your whole family across the country or the globe. Even small incremental changes can be disruptions. You can turn around one day and wonder how you'd gotten so far from where you had been. These things point to a world of expectations and disruptions. Among friends and peers, the world of expectations can mount. It's not just what to wear or who to hang out with or what music to listen to or what party to go to. The pressure to appear effortlessly perfect, smart and accomplished and fit and beautiful and popular, all without visible struggle, can be overwhelming. And maybe you've heard me say it before, these Demanding expectations by some are dubbed duck syndrome. Each person tries to glide calmly across the waters of life like a duck, hiding beneath the surface just how frantically and relentlessly they're paddling. The duck life is hard for anyone of any age, and duck syndrome is unquestionably pervasive across every generation in our culture, but I suspect it's felt most deeply by you, by teenagers, who are in the midst of hearing the world's message that wearing a mask is the only option and hiding your struggle is the only way. And 
you know as well as your parents do and your grandparents that disruption happens in the midst of these expectations too. Here a disruption looks like substance abuse or depression or a suicide attempt or an eating disorder or risky sexual behavior that you didn't expect yourself to be in the middle of. All of these are symptoms of seeking such perfection. And maybe it happened to you or to your friend or to those you, who you've seen struggle from afar. We live in a world of expectations and disruption. The Gospel of John, too, takes special care to highlight the expectations and disruptions of Jesus, but John does it quite differently. This is John, the fourth gospel writer. John is the different gospel. He doesn't try to fit in with all the other gospels. Instead, it is a more comfortable gospel, a gospel that works within the confines of metaphor and simile and things that are symbolic and epic. It begins not with a manger scene, with hay. It doesn't begin with shepherds. It doesn't begin with sheep or or even, even a baby. Instead, the Gospel of John begins with this wide-sweeping epic tale of darkness and light, of beginnings and all things coming into being. And all things come into being through Jesus. This Jesus in the Gospel of John is both divine and dusty. It is a tangible story at the end of intangibility. And here enters today's chapter 21. Some scholars have argued that today's story is tacked on. It's a second ending that was added on later, that it's the story that's already over. And if you look in chapter 20, it's not so hard to, it's not so hard to say that. Chapter 20 ends like this. Jesus performed many signs in, and in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written, these ones are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Sounds like an ending, right? Like the story is being wrapped up all neat and tidy. So what's going on here? Chapter 21. Was it added later? Was it an afterthought? Was it a post-credit sequence like those ones you catch at the end of Ferris Bueller or Iron Man or the Avengers? Or was it a final nugget of wisdom? as the audience got up from their seat, as the curtain went down, and as the lights were turned back up. I wonder if this story might be not a tacked-on addition, but instead a crucial element to the plot, a well-orchestrated disruption to our expectations of the post-Easter Jesus. The women had gone on Easter morning to see Jesus Jesus' body at the tomb, and they were disrupted by Jesus' body being gone. The physical world was disrupted. And then the disciples meet Jesus a week later in Jerusalem, and Thomas, our friend the doubter, is disrupted by the presence of Christ. And in that disruption, his expectation is that he can touch the wounds in his hands and in his side. But today's story is something different. It offers a new disruption. It's less tangible and more liminal, and yet somehow still substantial. Jesus appears, Jesus calls the disciples, the disciples respond, Jesus feeds them, and they recognize him. 
It's not outside the realm of gospel disruptions. We've seen this pattern before of appearance and call and response and being fed. But this story ends with a different kind of promise. This one ends saying that Jesus did many other things as well. If all of them were recorded, I imagine, and this I here is the gospel writer, not, not me, I imagine if all of them were recorded, the world itself would not have enough room for all the scrolls that were to be written. It's as if the gospel writer knew that even a whole printed Wikipedia page with 7,473 volumes and 4.6 million pages wouldn't be enough space to write down all the encounters of Jesus. This story, chapter 21, is a disruption of a different story. It is a foray into the Jesus who disrupts our neat and tidy lives, a story about how we might expect to taste and see God made manifest in the world beyond the gospel. It is an ending that calls us not just to recognize that others saw God in Jesus, that someone else recognized God in Jesus, but a calling for us to recognize God and respond. And if we're going to be detectives here, if we're going to be detective theologians, our first clue is Galilee. You know Galilee, right? It's that place where Jesus multiplied the loaves and fishes. And the disciples are going back there to that same sea about to go fishing. So we should be on high alert as readers. We know the importance of setting, right? I, I saw the Lion King, which begins with the sun rising on the whole animal kingdom who gather to meet their newborn heir to the throne, Simba, or Finding Nemo that begins with a barracuda attack on Nemo's coral reef home, or Frozen that starts with ice miners prophetically singing about how ice is so beautiful and powerful and dangerous and cold. I'm sure you know this song. Location matters. Galilee is important. Lion King can't begin in an ocean just as Finding Nemo can't begin in an ice mine. The story is a story that points to what's to come and location matters. And if we're detective theologians here, we need to hear that location matters. Galilee points us back towards the feeding of the 5,000 and forward towards this mystic meal, a beachside breakfast that all of us are invited to. But it's not just the location, it's also something more. Stories themselves are not without disruption. Stories, in fact, become stories because of a disruption because the everyday has turned upside down. Stories entail upset and agitation. A new lion cub king is in town, or in the case of Nemo or Elsa, the imminent danger of ocean or ice comes near enough to painfully disrupt the lives of those involved. And so the whole Gospel of John is a holy disruption. But this final episode in itself is a final disruption within a disruption that gives us a clue about how we are to make sense of being a Christian in every era, every century, every decade, every generation. The ways that Jesus is made known in our midst couldn't be fit into books that stack this high. They couldn't be fit in books that stack from here to the moon and back, from here to Pluto and back, from here to the next star and back. Jesus is made known again and again. There are too many stories to count. Jesus is made known for us and through us and with us. So 
Now that we're in Galilee, we see that Galilee matters. We see that Simon Peter decides to go night fishing, and maybe this is all on purpose. Night fishing would have allowed him to bring in his catch and sell it at the market in the morning, and so you know what that means. If you've ever been downwind from Fishtown in Leland or Pike's Place Market in Seattle, you know that even in an era with refrigeration, we want the freshest fish. And so Peter wants to get his fish to market, right? But even so, in the Gospel of John, as detective theologians, with, with our brains, we can notice that John pays attention to darkness and light, pays attention to setting, pays attention to day and night. This is no ordinary fishing trip. They go fishing at night, and at the break of dawn, while they are still out in the boat, Jesus is there at the beach. He asks if they've caught any fish, and he says, they say, no, we've got nothing, nada, we're empty-handed. The sun has come up, and we've got nothing. So he asks them to do something different, to cast their net on the other side. And sure enough, they follow him, and they put in their catch, and it's so abundant they can hardly pull it in. And as they reach the shore, they, Peter goes out and pulls in those fish. 153 of them they count. They're curious enough about this that they can count their fish, but none of them dare to ask who their fishing guide is. Nobody asks, who are you? They just know, they know it's Jesus, Jesus with them. They eat, they have a campfire on the beach. They are surrounded by abundance. Night fishing and empty nets become a sunrise and a wild catch. Darkness turns to light. Scarcity becomes surplus. The unbearable becomes bearable. And the impossible becomes possible. This is the final disruption, the disruption of the gospel. The story turns. It obstructs our neat and tidy expectations of what's possible, what's bearable. It stands between what is tangible and intangible, what can be said and what remains left unsaid and yet silently known. Unlike the other post-Easter appearances, this story asks nothing of evidence. It stands at that liminal place, at the doorway of knowing and not knowing, returning again and again to a knowing that's deeper, a knowing that's more true than any evidence could provide. I know you want evidence, I, I know. We've talked about it. And yet the Gospel of John here offers us a more messy ending, a less tidy way to tell, to tell a story, but a story that's imbued with a sense of wonder and awe and mystery. And so on Confirmation Sunday, this too is my hope, that there is no happy ending here today, that there is no tidy ending to this work of being a Christian, that no one rides off into the sunset thinking that they know everything about the presence of God. Confirmation is instead a final disruption, an invitation to something more. It's a messy ending imbued with a sense of wonder and awe and mystery. The Gospel of John, in the Gospel of John, we meet God not in the way we might expect to meet God, but instead, through faithful people, we glimpse a puzzling, raging, weeping, shouting, pleading, disrupting, disturbing, even evolving God, moving within the deep and appearing in unexpected and unplanned places. So I'll end, I'll end with this. A sermon nugget from the fourth century, from Ambrose of Milan, a Christian leader who was in the work of preparing 
young people to be baptized and it was similar to confirmation bill and I think that we should use his model they do five years for that pro process so maybe you guys can you guys can say yes to do a next year a five-year confirmation program because you're already done right you you're out of here you won't have to do it we'll we'll implement it next year five years for confirmation right here's what Milan, here's what Ambrose of Milan says he says imitate the fish I think he's giving us an alternative to this perfection-seeking duck. He says, imitate the fish. He's preaching to those newly baptized people, those who had just come through this faithful season of preparation, and he tells them, imitate the fish. Swimming with the swell of the water, is, you are not swallowed up because as a fish, you are used to swimming. He says, to you, this world is a sea, uncertain, with uncertain currents and deep waves and fierce storms. But instead of living in fear, swimming frantically like a duck to fake it till you make it, like the saying goes, Ambrose, I don't think he had fake it till you make it, but Ambrose offers us this instead. None will be swallowed up by the waves of the world who are used to the swell of the water, the chaos of everyday life. God bestows peace not as a promise of perfect serenity or an end to chaos or anxiety or strife, but as a source of strength in turmoil. One person puts it this way, if we unclench the need, this greedy ego, and let be and let God, the divine process won't do our swimming for us, but the divine may guide us to a depth that even now bears us and births us. This is the promise of the gospel, a more messy yet somehow full of hope message in our seeking for something more. It's a something more that can't be contained in Wikipedia-sized book. It's a something more that can't be contained with mere evidence. It's a something more that can't be contained within even the stories we tell, because even in the silence, God's presence is made known. It's a something more that points us again and again to the mystery of God in our midst. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.